Alrighty. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I hope you have had a pleasant Tuesday so far. In just a few minutes here, we're going to jump back into our discussion of the fulfillment process. In our time together today, we will talk about everyone's favorite things, which is a lot of financial accounting postings and get to play around with some T accounts and all. I was actually pleasantly surprised that on the midterm, um, well, surprised, that's miscarried. I was pleased, let's just leave it at that, to see that on the midterm, uh, people did pretty good on the posting-related questions. And uh, thinking towards our final exam, which will be here before you know it, uh, there'll be a lot more questions of that sort. I guess we have, what, a, just about a month left in the semester? And uh, I don't know that I have told you this previously, and it is a change from what is on the course schedule that I distributed, but your final exam um, will be administered in the testing center, similar to the way your midterm was. So uh, that gives you the option to uh, take it at the earliest possible convenience if you would like, or to delay it to the last possible minute if, if you would like that as well. But I know a lot of times towards the end of the semester, people like to get things over with and start Christmas vacation. So I thought that might be a good alternative. Yes, sir? Uh, it's for two days, I believe, for the final exam. I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. And it will overlap with the time that is our designated exam time. So if anyone has to take it during the designated exam time, you can take it then, but it will also be open before and after then to allow you to do some time shifting. And if you were to go to the uh, testing center website, you should already see it out there and could go ahead and you know, schedule your time now so that you can plan ahead and, and be excited about the end of the semester coming. So, questions or other things that uh, you have that we uh, should talk about here at the outset? We haven't had a lab due since the last time we were together, so um, there's not really been any major incoming lab things for me to talk about. Uh, some people have uh, run into some issues with some of the things related to uh, these last few lab assignments. I guess the one thing I would say is you're getting really close to the end, which is good, uh, but don't like kick it into high gear and try and work really, really, really quickly because some people have uh, for whatever reason done some things that then they had to go back and fix and created extra work for themselves. So uh, most of you, really all of you have done really well in the lab work this semester. So uh, continue that and, and wrap up the semester well. Questions, comments? Wednesday, what hours is it? Okay. Um, the testing center makes some of those decisions, so I guess they must have slotted us just for one day. So um, change what I said. It is one day, but it's any time during that day you can go over. So thank you for letting me know that. Other questions or comments, observations, one-act plays, soliloquies, anything? It's that point in the semester where everybody just kind of is ready for things to be over. But uh, don't let down, finish up strong, 
and uh, a few people have inquired about quizzes and I would say that the likelihood of a quiz this Thursday is pretty high so uh, make sure that you are looking over things in preparation for that and my hope is as well that by the time we get to the end of this week we will have been able to finish the fulfillment process. So all of that being said, we are continuing in our discussion of the fulfillment process. And we are at the point in our discussion where we are actually uh, working through the steps in the process itself. And so um, we previously talked about the pre-sales activity uh, stage, which we characterize as a lot of this as being CRM light, where the system gives us some functionality to enable salespeople to go out and meet with customers and put together quotations and other things of that sort uh, to respond to inquiries or requests for quotations from customers. And uh, hopefully that will lead us to getting in a sales order. And we talked last time about the sales order acceptance process. Uh, we'll reference a little bit more of that in our time together today. But we are on the stage in the process related to shipping. And we started talking about shipping when we were together last time and so uh, we will pick up there so the elements of the sh of the shipping step that's kind of hard to say and potentially perilous uh, so the elements of the shipping step are the trigger is do we have orders that need to be delivered that's that's pretty straightforward and so the task here is we create the delivery and, and you've done that in your labs now a few times where you go in and you create a delivery document and that will then trigger the picking process and in your lab you've done that where you have put in the quantity and you've checked that the item was okay meaning that all of the items were fulfilled and, and you checked them a um, little bit more work related to that in the real world where you have to actually find the items and 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 gather them up packing them um, and then we talked last time at the very end of our discussion the issue that is critical here which is the posting of the goods issue and and what's the significant of post goods issue why is that important Um, it does have an impact on value. That's where we change ownership. That's where we stop owning something and the ownership is officially passed to our customer. And, and that's influenced by the terms of sale associated with an individual transaction. And so in shipping, we update the sales order to reflect that the item is shipped. Um, the material master gets updated what about the material master gets updated? Don't be afraid to participate. When we ship out a product, what is on the material master that is going to change? Inventory level, which is reflected in what ways? The count and the value, okay? And, and that is true for there's one other element that gets considered in that that's true for what kind of materials um, 
we're kind of dancing around the right answer, but we don't have the right answer yet. The, the, there are two broad categories of materials, particularly when we look at them from a financial accounting perspective. Valuated and non-valuated, okay? So when we're talking about updating the material master and that being reflected in changes to the quantity and the value, that's true for valuated materials. And if you stop and think about it, the things that we are going to be shipping out are, I would expect, pretty universally to be valuated materials because we would have been reflecting them as an asset and now we're selling them to someone, we're transferring ownership to them, and so there's a lot of documents and a lot of things that have to be updated in our system, which is going to lead us to some of the accounting postings. This is a really important fact here that uh, seems like it would make an excellent true-false question for uh, a quiz or an exam at some point in the future. Um, the shipping slash goods issue is the first step in the sales order process that actually has uh, an FI impact. So when we get the order in from the customer, what's notable about that is that doesn't show up anywhere. Okay, we have not actually registered revenue when we get orders in from customers. Now, why is this important? Well, perhaps if you have worked in a business before that retails products, maybe you have seen this firsthand. And you would particularly see this perhaps if any of you worked in a warehouse or shipping facility, but it also plays out in other kinds of businesses as well. We don't actually register the FI impact of a sale until we ship it out. So if we are getting very close to the end of the quarter or the end of the fiscal year or some other really important financial accounting milestone, a lot of times companies will work really, really hard to start shipping out orders at that point. Because it doesn't matter whether we have the order in hand from a customer. I mean, that's great, but that has no FI impact. But when we start shipping things out, then we have an FI impact. So a lot of times those last few days in the quarter or last few days in a particular accounting period, if we're trying to meet particular targets or profitability numbers or whatever, there's a real effort to, okay, let's get everything out as quick as we possibly can. Because shipping slash goods issue is the first step in the sales order process that that has an FI impact. This may in fact, and, and we can't state this as definitively, shipping may be the first goods movement in the sales order process. Now, the reason why we, we say it might be is if we have warehouse management enabled, there might be a step before this where the goods are moved out of the warehouse to a staging area to facilitate picking or other things of that sort. So we might have that going on in some operations. But for a lot of organizations, shipping is really the first time that the stuff actually moves. So that's kind of obvious. The salesperson goes out, makes a sale. We register that in the system. But at this point, no materials have actually gone anywhere until we get to the shipping step. And then that's going to change here, quite obviously. The shipping step, one of the key documents here is this guy right here, the delivery document. 
and the delivery document is is a document that is is going to be prepared that just has the information related to this delivery going to this particular customer so there's a lot of uh, diagrams we have like this in your slide set that just goes over what's what data is in a particular document and and I really believe that if you understand the document you don't need to spend time memorizing this it, it just becomes very very logical as to what's going on here um, this is a outbound delivery to a customer so obviously we we have the client number on everything Company code has to be there because there's a financial accounting implication. Sales area has to be there because somebody wants to get credit for making this sale. The delivery plant and the shipping point, those are key elements in logistics because we have to know where we're pulling the merchandise out of and what shipping point is being used to have it leave our organization. As far as the customer information, uh, we have to know where, where we're sending this. And so we have shipping data there related to the, coming from the customer master. The partner function tells us ship to, bill to, other critical information. And remember we observed before, and this is kind of an important thing not to, not to neglect in our thinking here, these are, are uh, this is kind of the default way in which we deal with a particular customer. Um, but maybe for a given material, we do something a little bit different. And so we always have to be sure to check the customer material information record to see if there's something in there that would override uh, the default behavior. And so um, all of this, the information about the material, including its weight, its dimensions, think about it's very logical if we're going to ship this to a customer, we need to know how big a box to put it in, whether we could ship it to them uh, FedEx or if it's going to require a semi all of that's going to be in the delivery document. But the delivery document is what's going to tell people in our organization, okay, we're ready to fulfill this order and, and get this on the way to, to a customer. Remember before we talked about the sales order document, this is a document that is somewhat similar to the sales order document, but there is one key element of distinction that we want to make sure that we understand here. And I'm not going to tell you what it is right off. I'm going to see if you can tell me what it is. Um, the delivery document is divided into two sections. We have the header section and we have the line item section. And the header section pretty straightforward. It's just going to give a date and where this stuff is going and then the line item section is going to give the material number and, and the quantity. So it's a rather straightforward document. Other things that we just talked about previously like client, company code, all of that would be on here as well. It's, it's just not illustrated. So my question for you is, and uh, you'll have to put your thinking cap on for this, how is this different from a sales order document in a rather key way? So I'm going to put this here, sales order document. So how is this document different from a sales order document? 
because first of all, there's a lot of similarities, right? We have reference to the customer, we have materials, we have quantities, but there are some key differences. Yes, sir. Okay, notice there is, there is no reference to price here at all. So that is one key difference. Why would we not put prices on here? We might worry about, what do you mean by that? Okay, so we don't have to put it there because value isn't important. What other reasons might we not want to put prices on this? Just think real practically. What's that? Okay, it's going to be on the invoice, so I don't have to put it here. But beyond that, you know, if I told you we do not want to put the price on this document, why do we not want to put the price on this document? Yes, sir. Okay, that could be the case, but keep in mind that this is attached to a particular delivery to a particular customer. Um, what? Yes, sir. Yeah, so one of the reasons why we don't want to put price on here is because it could make something attractive for the sake of it accidentally falling off a truck, so to speak, or something of that sort. So that might be one reason why we might not want to list this. And beyond that, even if we're not concerned about it like while it's in transit, on the receiving end, it's really not the business of the people that work in the warehouse what the company paid for these different things. Because if someone in the warehouse realized how valuable something was, that might create a temptation for it to disappear. And, and so a lot of times organizations, they guard. You know, how much did we pay for something? Because sometimes they get a really good deal. Sometimes they pay a lot for something. And so fundamentally, we don't want to put price on something that we don't have to put price on. And so price absolutely does not get listed in this document. So that's one way in which this is very different from the sales order document. But how else is it different? Yes, sir. There's no schedule lines. Remember, one of the things that made the sales order document unique is the sales order document had three sections. It had a header, it had line items, and then every line item had the potential of having multiple schedule lines. Well, we don't have that here. Why do we not have that here? And it's, I'm just asking you to apply a very logical thought process here. Why do we not have schedule lines? Yes, sir. Absolutely. So the sales order document might have said the customer orders 60 bicycles and 30 of them are to be delivered on May 5th and the other 30 are to be delivered on July 5th. Okay? And that's fine. We need that level of detail on the sales order document. But this document, the delivery document, relates to just one delivery. 
So we don't put the information on there about other materials. We're just recording information about the items that are in this delivery. So we do not have schedule lines on a delivery document, but we do have schedule lines on a sales order document. So very good. All right, so any questions about that? So there are some logistical things for us to think about in regards to deliveries. One order can be broken up into multiple deliveries. And, and I'm going to put a question mark next to this because that sounds like a definitive statement, but there's something that we have to consider here, which is will our customer accept partial deliveries? So an order could be broken up into multiple deliveries if our customer allows us to do so. Now sometimes we obviously have to do this. The customer's ordered such a large amount of something and we ship it to them by way of truck and it can't all fit on one truck. So in that situation we pretty much are going to have to have multiple deliveries because what goes in each individual truck would be its own independent delivery. But even apart from that, maybe sometimes there's a reason why we would want to divide it up into multiple deliveries and if the customer is okay with that, that, that would be fine. It might be, for example, that you know here's our customer and we're actually going to wind up fulfilling this order out of two different plants because that's just where the materials happen to be. And it might well be that they both arrive at the customer's location on the same day, but they're actually different orders in the context of the way we think about them and process them on our end. We can also have multiple orders consolidated into one delivery. I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, but there have been a on a rare set of occasions where I will go to Amazon.com and place an order and then an hour later I'll realize oh there's something else I should have ordered and I'll go and order that too. And sometimes the Amazon system is kind of on the ball enough and the processing of the orders has not happened and so they actually consolidate that into one box. And so sometimes I'll get one box that actually has a couple different orders in it. Other times I'll place multiple orders on the same day and get different boxes. So they can't always do that, but I'm sure they do try and make an effort to consolidate multiple orders into one delivery for various obvious reasons. It's, it saves on shipping and handling, it saves overall effort, and so the same thing here is true. If we get multiple orders from a customer, we may be able to consolidate them into one delivery. But there's going to be four things that the system will look at before it decides whether or not it can do the consolidation. The first one I think is pretty obvious. Okay, it's got to be going to the same customer. You know, it's not like Amazon can say, oh, we're shipping this to, to this guy and uh, there's somebody else on his block that's placing an order, so let's just put it in the same box and ask him to take it to his next door neighbor. You know, that's, that's not going to work. So, you know, it's, we're looking at if we're going to consolidate multiple orders into one delivery, has to be to the same customer, has to be leaving from the same shipping point. 
okay? If we stick with using our Amazon example here, if I placed an order and, and one order is supposed to be coming to me via overnight delivery and the other is supposed to be coming to me via ground delivery, they're going to treat that as separate because they're not going to want to consolidate the ground into the overnight shipment and otherwise they would not fulfill the delivery requirements. So it has to be the same shipping point, the same delivery date, and then the same ship to address. And, and this last one right here I would suggest is perhaps the one of these that is the least obvious. You know, the other three are, are very obvious. It's got to be for the same customer. It's got to be leaving from the same plant, the same shipping point. It's got to be the same delivery date. But we can't forget that a customer could have multiple ship to addresses. And the customer is not going to like it if they place an order and say deliver this to Texas and they place another order and say deliver this to Virginia. And we look at it and we say same customer, same shipping point, same delivery date, I can consolidate them and it all shows up in Virginia. That's not going to work. So we've got to check all four of those things and if they're all four the same we can consolidate them into a, into a single delivery. Well, as we observed a few moments ago, a key facet in the delivery process and the shipping and delivery process is posting of goods issue. And, and I want to emphasize, when I first heard this term, I always thought it was post goods issue as in post as in after, you know, like now I can't think of another word that you say post whatever, post retirement, okay, meaning after retirement. Well, post goods issue, the word post here is an accounting term. So we're posting the, the goods issue. So what's going to happen here? A material document is going to be created related to the fact that we don't own this anymore. An accounting document is going to be created that will wind up updating our general ledger and we'll see the contents of that in a moment. And, and this goes back to uh, what we were talking about a moment ago. What's going to actually happen here is the stock account where the value of this material was previously recorded as an asset, we're going to credit it because we now have fewer bicycles or t-shirts or helmets or whatever it is. And the corresponding debit, and we'll, we'll do this with t-accounts in a moment, is cost of goods sold. So it's also notable here that we have not registered any revenue at this point, okay? When we ship the stuff out, we're crediting the stock account and we're debiting costs of goods sold. There is a CO document created. We've not emphasized in our discussion cost accounting documents, but the CO document here is going to capture the COGS data so that we could do profitability analysis because obviously cost of materials is a key element in things related to cost accounting and so this document is going to give us that. Um, the billing due list is updated. Okay, We've got to tell someone else in our organization or another process in our organization that it's time to send this customer an invoice and the sales document is going to be updated 
just so um, the status will be reflected there. The reason for that is uh, customer calls us up and says, hey, what's going on with my order? We'll look that up in the system based on their sales order. So they might give us their purchase order number. We use the purchase order number to look up the sales order. We find that document and that will lead us to all of the details about whether or not the item has, has actually shipped out. Okay. Any questions about this? All right, so now we get to the T accounts here, okay, and the financial accounting implications. And so shipping, what happens in shipping? Well, this actually relates back to uh, this document we saw back here on a previous slide where we're sending out bikes and, and T-shirts here, okay? So bikes and T-shirts is one delivery but notice this, it's actually in this case touching more than just two uh, general ledger accounts. We are crediting the inventory for finished goods, reflecting that uh, the bicycles are things that we make. And so we now have $42,000 less in bicycles. And the trading goods, which are the t-shirts, we now have $1,500 less in t-shirts. And so the corresponding debit here is to, is to cost of goods sold. So remember the fundamental idea here is we are removing from inventory, from a valuation point of view, the items that we now no longer own. Now, I have a very, very important question for you, which is, this number right here, the $43,500 and, and this point, okay? Now, I'm gonna ask you this question a few different ways. Does that number show up on the delivery document? Yes or no? No, okay? We're all agreed it doesn't show up on the delivery document. Does that number show up on the sales order document? No is the right answer. Why does that number, why is that number not something we see on the sales order document? What's that? Okay, so this is reflective of my cost. I valued the bicycles here at $1,400, and I valued the t-shirts at $15. But that's not what I sold them for, unless I'm selling them at break even, which would be pretty foolish here. So the assumption is that the bill I'm sending the customer is going to be for more than $43,500. So we have to make sure as we think about these transactions that we, we're working from the right mindset here. When I ship an item out, I am removing it from my assets based on how I valued it, which relates fundamentally to my cost. So I bought t-shirts for $15 each, and so now I sold them, so I have fewer t-shirts, so I take them out of my inventory based on the carrying cost 
that I had associated with those items. So as we work through these problems, remember that this is not, you know, the customer might be cutting me a check for $80,000, but that's, that's irrelevant at this point. This step in the process is only about my cost of those items, okay? Questions? I put this slide here really just for your review and, and studying. It's, it's the fundamental equation that drives the income statement. And so what we have just established here in the financial accounting point of view is, is what the costs of goods sold were at this point, okay? The revenue I would find on the sales order document, um, but I haven't realized that yet because there hasn't been a financial accounting posting. But obviously, accurately capturing the cost of goods sold is really, really important. So now, I've picked the goods, I've packed the goods, I've shipped the goods, and I've officially issued them to the customer and posted that in my accounting records, which is what we just looked at on, on the last slide. So what's left? I got to build the customer. The focus here is, is creating an invoice, okay? Rather obvious. Just like we observed that we could combine multiple orders into a single delivery, we might be able to combine multiple deliveries into one billing document. The criteria here are different than the criteria before. Remember the criteria related to delivery was it's got to be going to the same customer, it's got to be leaving from the same shipping point, it's got to be delivered on the same day and going to the same address. In order to consolidate bills, it has to be the same payer, the same billing date, and the same destination country. Okay? Now, let's take the easiest of those first. Why does it have to be the same destination country? Financial accounting is a really good answer. What specifically is likely to differ? Currency might be an issue, or what, I heard somebody else say something. Taxes. Taxes is the one that would very likely to be different here. So we might have differences in currency. We absolutely will have differences in taxes. But if it's all going to the same payer, the same billing date, the same destination country. So realize what this means is this could have been deliveries to different physical addresses but I consolidate it onto the same invoice as long as the payer is the same. And, and it's not unusual to see this happen, where we have one customer, and the customer gives us, um, I'll just say this is a ship to, so I'll put ST here. So we have multiple ship to locations, but when it comes time to paying the bills, all the bills, the pay to, is just one location. Let's take, for example, Walmart. And I'm, I'm assuming this to be the case, although I do not know it definitively. Walmart has distribution centers all across the United States. When they contact a supplier, they might say, we want a million of these things, but we want 100,000 cent here, 100,000 cent here, 100,000 cent here. And so they have multiple ship to addresses. 
but they'll tell the customer, they'll tell the vendor, but just bill us and send us the bill at our headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas. So it could well be that this shipment went to Texas, this went to Virginia, and this went to Tennessee, and, and the pay to goes to Arkansas. Be a very, very common business scenario. So realize that the idea that you could have deliveries consolidated or brought together, we could have billing brought together as long as it's going to the same payer, the same billing date, this relates to terms of sale. You know, the customer isn't going to like it if we consolidate multiple bills and in so doing, we rob them of the number of days to pay that they are allocated. So it has to be the same payer, the same billing date, and, and the same destination country. And so the last point here is one delivery could be expanded to many billing documents. Now that's not illustrated in my picture here, but the idea is that we could have a customer that, that took one delivery, but they want it broken out into separate bills. Sometimes we do this because of things we've got going on in cost accounting. Like for example, maybe ETSU orders a bunch of paper from a supplier and they say deliver that to us at central receiving. And so a semi comes in with eight and a half by 11 white paper and offloads a full semi full of, of things. But they say, but we'd like this broken up into multiple bills because some of the bills, and this happens, I don't know about printer paper, but this happens commonly here at the university where there's the uh, medical side of the university and there's the other side of the university. And so the med school and things affiliated with the med school, they might be paying for a third of the shipment and the other part of the university is paying for the other two thirds. And so we want two separate bills. Sometimes customers will say, um, you, we need you to send us a bill for the materials and then any kind of labor or delivery costs or anything like that, we need those separated onto separate bills. It's, this is kind of like the SAP equivalent of if you're a waiter or waitress and somebody asking you to split the check. You know, if the customer asks you to split the check, all you care about is getting paid. So if they want it split into multiple billing documents, we can do that. Typically though, we're only going to do this if the customer asks us to. The consolidation will do by default unless the customer tells us not to do that, but the splitting is something we can do if it is requested. Questions? Yes. I don't know that I can give you a good answer to that question. Um, that's a accounting sales tax related question and I am not up on all the intricacies of how sales tax is assessed, but it would not be a problem for us to have a line item for Tennessee tax and Virginia tax and Texas tax. We could do that and segregate it in that fashion. Um, it's all 
you know, usually when we think of differentiating, differentiating things, it has to do with it in the United States or outside the United States. Crossing state borders, we can just record them as different line items. But that's a really good question. Other questions? Okay, so um, elements in the billing step. So uh, the trigger for this is we have things that the customer needs to be billed for. That's pretty straightforward. The data that we're going to use here, uh, master data, organizational data, transaction data, the task is we create the billing document. Now what's notable here is we create an invoice, but we might also have to create a credit memo or a debit memo. And so those are the two things that, that, that we will talk about here. So we create an invoice, which just says, okay, you bought this from us, you agreed to pay this, and so here's your bill. The invoice is, is the bill. We issue a credit memo if the billing price is too high, if the product is defective, or if for any other reason we wish to reduce the amount the customer might pay. So for example, we might create an invoice for $15,000 and we create that on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, the customer calls us up and says, hey, this shipment, we went through it a little bit more and some of these items are defective and uh, it's a good customer, we apologize to the customer, and we say, okay, you clearly, you don't have to pay us $15,000, so we, we figure out what they're, what they're due, and then we want to reduce the amount that they owe us, so we might issue a credit memo for, let's say, $1,000. And so that now reduces the amount that they have to pay us by $1,000. So a credit memo we use if the product's defective. Maybe I, I billed the customer wrong. The customer calls me up and says, hey, I got this bill and it's for $15,000 and, and something's wrong here. You know, somebody misinterpreted something on our purchase order. Or maybe the customer calls us up and says, you know, I know the purchase order was for this amount, but now that we see the materials, we really think we overpaid. Can you give us a discount? You know, basically anytime I want to reduce the amount that the customer has to pay me, I issue a credit memo. That is not uncommon for a company to do. Less common would be a debit memo. A debit memo is where we increase the amount the customer must pay. Now, the customer is not going to be upset if we send them a bill for $15,000 and then we follow that with a credit memo for $1,000 because then they're going to be like, oh, yay, I have to pay less. The customer is probably not going to be happy if they get a bill for $15,000 followed by a debit memo that says, oh, you actually owe us $1,000 more than that. So debit memos are very, very rare but we use them when we have to increase the account, the, the amount the customer might pay us. You know, maybe the customer calls us up and uh, honest customer and says, um, you know, hey, you undercharged me. Well, we would issue a debit memo to take advantage of that. I, I will tell you now, one of my favorite incidences that ever has happened in my life that goes along kind of with this, this goes back to when I was, was single. 
about a year before I got married, I went to Sears, this is in Florida, and bought a washer and dryer. And um, when they, when they, you know, I placed the order and they said, we can bring it to you next Tuesday. And I was like, that's great. Next Tuesday is fine. Well, then they called me like on Friday night and said, we know we told you we could deliver it on Tuesday, but we actually can't deliver it on Tuesday. We can deliver it next Friday. And I was like, well, I'm going to be out of town on Friday. You know, can, can you deliver it to me on Tuesday? And they said, well, we'll try. We'll try and figure it out. So sure enough, I was home on Tuesday. They delivered the water and dryer they installed it I signed for it everything was good well then on Wednesday night I get a, one of those automated phone calls from Sears saying your washer and dryer will be delivered on Friday and I'm like you delivered it last night so I called the Sears people back and I said you already delivered me this washer and dryer you don't need to deliver me another one on Friday and I know you'll find this hard to believe, but the person I was talking to on the phone did not understand and was like, so you don't want the washer and dryer? I'm like, no, I want it. You already sold it to me and delivered it to me. And so I tried to communicate that with them. And um, so I thought life was good. Well, I get my next Sears bill and there's a charge for the washer and dryer and there's a credit for the washer and dryer. And so I called them up, called the credit card company up, it was a Sears credit card, and I said, um, I don't know what's going on here. And they said, well, you placed an order for a washer and dryer, and so we billed you for it, and then um, we couldn't deliver it. You canceled the delivery, so we canceled the order and we credited back to you. And I said, no, no, you actually, you delivered me the washer and dryer, um, and then you tried to deliver it to me a second time, and I told you no. But I got a washer and dryer from you. And they're like, oh, we're so, so sorry. We'll take care of that. Next month, I get a bill from Sears. They have now credited me again for the price of the washer and dryer. So I now have like a $600 credit on my Sears account. So I call them up again, and I say, OK, uh, let's go through this again. Order a washer and dryer. You deliver it. You tried to deliver me another one. I called you up, tried to fix this. Um, you know, now you've got a credit sitting on my bill. And they're like, oh, we're so, so sorry. We don't know how this got messed up. We'll fix it. Can you guess what happened on my next Sears bill? I got another credit for another washer and dryer. So now, at this point, Sears has like paid me $1,400 to buy a washer and dryer from them. And I called them back the next month, and they didn't issue me any more credits but they never took the credit off of my bill and so it just sat there for like a couple of months until I bought more stuff from Sears and eventually they wound up mailing me a refund check and um, you know so it was like my favorite transaction ever where they paid me money they paid me more than twice the value of the item to to buy it from them well that's, I tell that story here because Sears went nuts issuing me credit memos in this situation. And in fact, in, in one of those cases, they, they should have been issuing debit memos, but somebody ran the wrong transaction or flagged the wrong thing or somehow the wrong kind of thing got happened, happened in their system. So credit memos and debit memos are how we um, adjust 
what the customer owes us once we've sent out an, an invoice. And the only thing here to keep in mind is the difference between credit and memo, uh, credit and, and debit here. And I think if you put yourself in the shoes of the customer, from a customer's perspective, you want a credit because that means you're going to have to pay less. And so the company calls it a credit memo um, when they issue it in that situation. A any questions about the, the items here? Yes? Canceling the billing, okay, that's good. So canceling the billing document here would be hypothetically, of course. I ship something to a customer and I create the invoice. And the invoice actually, you know, I ship it out on Tuesday, I create the invoice on Wednesday but the shipment's gonna take it four or five days to get to them, and something happens and the shipment never reaches them at all. And then the customer calls us up and says, hey look, I didn't get the item, I'm gonna have to buy it from somebody else because I need it right now, just, just cancel my order. And so in that case, we'd have to cancel their bill. So anytime, you know, we, we presumably legitimately bill the customer, but we need to cancel it we can cancel the document. And like we've observed before, the bill still stays in our system. It doesn't go away, but it just shows as being canceled and, and so the customer doesn't pay it. Okay, good question. All right, so um, data in a billing document. So the bill is obviously going to have the customer's information. Um, it's going to have the company code in the sales area because once again, we wanna know who gets credit for this. Um, it's going to pull from the delivery document the material numbers and the quantities and the dates and things like that. And so all of this is going to go into the billing document. It's also going to pull from the sales order itself because it will reference the customer's purchase order number. And notice it's pulling quantity from a couple of different places because it might, for example, list, we delivered you 15 t-shirts and we back ordered three because you ordered 18 or, or something like that. So it's going to pull all of this into the invoice that, that it creates. So the outcomes of the billing step, whoops. Structure of the billing document, excuse me. I didn't realize I had this slide here. So we have a header, we have line items. And so, um, you know, here we're going to have materials and uh, invoice quantities and, and so on. Uh, we're also going to have uh, values and other things here. We don't need to talk more about that. Okay, outcomes of the billing step. This is where we book the revenue. So it's shipping is where we reflected costs of goods sold. When we bill the customer is when we book revenue. Now that goes back to my example before where I said, okay, we're getting to the end of an accounting period and so we try and make an effort to ship out as much as we can. Well, that's part one. Part two is we wanna ship out as much as we can so that we can bill. And in a lot of companies, as soon as you press the enter key to say this has shipped, that is when goods issuing happens and the, and the bill is created right then. And so the idea here is we wanna get to the billing step as quick as we possibly can 
because that is when the revenue gets booked. Why else do we want to get to this as quick as we possibly can? Because it's when we book revenue. Why else do we want to bill customers as quick as possible? What's that? So we get the money faster because the terms of sale might, for example, be they get a 2% discount if they pay within 10 days. Well, those 10 days don't start clicking by until we've billed the customer. So if we ship something out to the customer on the 15th and don't bill them until the 30th, we've given them 15 days plus the 10 days they get. So we want to bill the customer really as instant, the instant title passes, we would love for the bill to be in their hands right at that moment because that's when the clock is going to get started for, for them having to pay us. Obviously, um, this is going to be captured in an FI document because we're going to be doing some posting to different accounts here. This is something we talked about before. We're going to be hitting the customer account and the revenue account, but, but we'll go back through that there. So the FI document is going to update our general ledger. Um, there will be a controlling document created. We saw a controlling document cr created before to capture the costs of goods sold. This time a controlling document is going to be created to capture the revenue data for a profitability analysis. And just like we observed previously, the sales document will be updated because of the status. And so we will reflect and you know, we pull up the sales order document and we can see, okay, the order uh, shipped out on this date and the bill was generated on this date right here. And so we want to get that bill into the hands of our customer as, as soon as we possibly can. So the financial accounting postings that go along with billing is what is the number two in this, in this slide, which I, I pulled this diagram from your book so that you would have that as a reference as well. So the credit here is to revenue. So we sent the customer a bill for $86,700. So we are crediting revenue and we are debiting the customer's account to indicate that they owe us $86,700. And that, through automatic account determination, will populate up to the, or excuse me, through a reconciliation account, through accounts receivable, for the $86,700. I will point out to you once again that in step one, when we did the shipping, that's based on our cost. In step two, when we bill, that's based on what we charge the customer. And so you can see that the sets of numbers are very different here. Our cost for these items was $43,000. The revenue that we got from that was $86,700. So right away, you should begin to see that if we wanted to calculate our gross profit as a company, we, would, we could take the balance of the revenue account and the balance of the cost of goods account and do math with those and, and come up with our gross profit. But we don't have an account called gross profit account. It's a calculation based on the balance of, of those two other accounts. Questions about this? 
All right, well, we're getting close to the end here. Payment, and here we post the incoming payment. And an FI document is going to be created, and the general ledger is going to be updated. And we now will have more cash than we had, and so we have to reflect that the customer owes us less money. And so we'll look at the, the posting of that in a moment. And we also have to look at where this gets a little bit challenging is what happens in, in the event of discrepancies here. But the payment step, really simple. We go to the post office, we open envelopes, and there are checks in there. So now it's time to post payments. In reality, for most companies of size, you don't go to the post office and pick it up. Um, the one of the organizations I used to work for in the past had a room that probably was about the size of this classroom that was essentially a, a safe or a vault that people worked in. And in order to get into the room, you walk through a, a small hallway, a, a man trap, you probably have heard that term before, where to get through the first door, you had to scan your badge, you had to key in a pin, and there was a third step as well, and then you could enter the man trap. And then once you got into the, into the central hallway, you had to do that again to get past that. And as soon as you walk past the second doorway, it's like if you've ever seen a bank with a safe deposit box that has like a door that's actually like a door on a safe. And that was right inside there. And all the walls were metal. And there were desks scattered around the room. And that was where all of the, the money came in. And that entire room had cameras everywhere, including right over the top of everybody's desks, so that as envelopes were opened up, you could see what was there. And everything was very, very tightly monitored in that room. And that's where all of the money came in. That's where everything was opened up. And that's where the payments were actually, were actually processed here. Essentially, we record payments. And the challenge here is this applying of payments to open items. Because where this will get really challenging, and, and what we have to talk about here is, you know, let's assume that we have a customer. I'll call it just customer number 147. And um, on June 1st, they ordered something from us, and we sent them a bill for $5,000. And on June 3rd, they bought something from us for $4,000. And on June 6th, they bought something for $8,000. And you get the idea here, they're doing a lot of business with us. Well, a check comes in the mail on uh, June 15th for $8,000. And that's all it is, it's a check for $8,000. Well, what is that for? Is that in payment of this invoice right here, taking advantage of the fact that they get a discount for paying within 10 days, and they went ahead and paid the $8,000 and wanted us to apply the credit to what, what was owed previously, or is this in payment of these older amounts, or what? And so this can actually get pretty confusing because companies will, will have policies related to how they will allow things to be posted to your account. I, I don't know if you've ever had this happen before, but if so, you can perhaps relate to this experience. Sometimes credit card companies will offer you special deals where you get like 0% financing. 
And so what they'll do is maybe, uh, in my example here, maybe you have an existing balance of $1,500, and then they tell you anything you buy in the next 90 days is 0% uh, financing. And so you wind up buying $800 worth of stuff. And then at the end of that period, you send them a check for $500, and they apply that $500 to this $800 and keep charging you interest on this amount. And you might say, no, 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 take that $500 and apply it to the stuff you're charging me interest on. And they say, no, 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 that's not the way this works. And so companies actually have to give a, a good bit of thought here as to the rules that they are going to apply when it comes to allocating payments on, onto customers' accounts. If we only bill the customer for one thing and they pay for it, life is easy. But for a lot of our customers, we're going to have a lot of bills. We're going to potentially have checks coming in out of order. This can get pretty confusing. So a payment document is always going to be created when we get a payment from a customer. And this may be one of the least complicated documents we've ever seen. It's going to have the customer's account number on it, and it's going to have the date and the amount they paid as well as the client and the company code. And we capture all of that in the payment document. Now in reality, what most companies will do is they will first of all, they'll scan or otherwise make a copy of, of every check that gets to them. If a customer dares pay in cash, they will not like that because you kind of can't photocopy cash. But for checks, you can make a copy of it. And then they'll do things like stamp or automatically encode the back of the check with things like the customer's account number and other key information so that this can be tracked down later. It would be great if no one ever made a mistake when this was going on. But the reality is in most organizations, you get a check that's supposed to be for customer 14478, and the data entry clerk transposes the numbers and posts it to account 14748. And now all of a sudden, a customer is wondering why you haven't posted their payment, even though you've cashed their check. And another customer is saying, woo, bonanza, I just got a credit on my account. And so one of the things that companies will do is go to great lengths here to make it easy to track down that problem. And so you do all kinds of scanning of this and capture all this information so that you can go back and find out when there are discrepancies so that, that you can fix them. Let's talk about the financial accounting impact of payment here. These are the things with the threes next to it. We, we first of all have to wipe out the obligation from the customer. So we credit their account for the amount that they have paid us, which bubbles up through account reconciliation, account determination to our accounts receivable, which in this case wipes out the overall accounts receivable, and the corresponding debit is to our bank account. Yes, sir? I don't want to get too complicated with this, but what happens if they send us the money and they're taking advantage of a discount for their bill? Next slide. Yes. Yes. Next slide. Okay. We'll get to that. So, no, you're not, you're, you're like 30 seconds ahead of us, but let's make sure we understand this first. Any, any questions about this? So the question that Joseph just asked is exactly right on, which is a lot of times we will not get a check 
for the amount that is reflected here as to be the amount that we build the customer. One reason why there may be a difference is because we offered the customer a discount for prompt payment. So what happens here? First of all, you understand, let's assume that the check the customer sent us was $86,000. We can't just credit their account for $86,000 because then it would still show that they owe us $700. So we've got to wipe out their full obligation. So how do we make this happen? So in this case, instead of sending us a check for $86,700, the customer took advantage of the discount, and so they sent us a check for $85,833, which is still money coming into our bank account, so we debit our bank account for that amount. We then go and we credit the customer's account for the full amount that we billed them because they have paid that obligation. But we now have a discrepancy, if you will, of $867. That is the legitimate difference between what they paid us and what we billed them for. So we need another account that we can debit that differential amount to make debits and credits equal. And so we have we could call this account a variety of different things, but in this case, we've elected to call it a sales discount account, and that's where all of these will, will be accumulated. Okay, answer, I think, your question and uh, other questions. Now, the key thing to keep in mind is, this is what we do when the customer has taken a discount that's legitimate, or that we decide is legitimate. You know, a lot of times in organizations we say we'll give them a 3% discount if they pay in 10 days and the check comes in on day 11. We say, okay, close enough, we'll still go from the discount. But if the customer has underpaid us illegitimately, we have to handle that differently. So we're not, you know, it's not, we're not saying here, oh, the customer sent us a check for less than they owed us, we'll just write that off into this sales discount account. No, we only do this when a customer legitimately takes a discount. And the key here is we do this because we billed them for one amount and they legitimately paid us uh, a different amount. So those are not equal. The billing and the paying are not equal and this is legitimate in this situation. It's not somebody trying to get over on anybody. It's, it's not an error or anything else of that sort. They legitimately took a discount and so we have to reflect that here. Any questions before we forge ahead? Alright, so now let's talk about another scenario. Alright, so we get the customer payment. Now we've got a little flow chart. We get the customer payment and we ask ourselves, is this a complete payment? Meaning, are they paying the full amount of the invoice or are they paying the right amount after we take out the discount? And if the answer to that is yes, then we do what we just showed, customer and reconciliation accounts cleared, and this flowchart comes from your book. It's kind of odd. This is like a square that we go into and never come out of, so we're done at that point. You know, if the customer, if the payment is complete, life is good. Now, though, we go into this situation. What if the customer has not paid us the right amount? We build the customer for $95,000. 
for reasons that we do not understand, they sent us a check for $92,000. And we weren't even offering them a cash discount. Or hypothetically, we were offering them a cash discount, but they far missed the deadline here. So either they screwed up or they're trying to pull a fast one. But for whatever reason, we don't have the right amount here. So how are we going to handle this is the question. And the answer to that is there are two different ways that we could handle this, all right? And, and so here's the, here, here's the scenario here. I'm going to start, and I'm going to draw my own T accounts to illustrate this because the bottom of the slide here might be, might be a little bit confusing. Let's assume that the customer owed us $95,000, okay? So this was the customer account, just like we saw a moment ago that it was $95,000, okay? When we get this payment in, we could credit their account for $92,000 and debit our bank account because we now have $92,000. And if you look at this now, this obviously leaves a $3,000 difference, which is sitting out on their account. That is a totally legitimate way that we could handle this. Any questions about that scenario? That's one way we could handle this. The other way might seem a little odd, but it's another way we can handle this. The other way we can handle this is the customer owed us $95,000. They paid us $92,000. But what we're going to do is we're going to credit their account for $95,000 and then debit their account for $3,000. Now you might say, huh? Hopefully you recognize that in either scenario, the result is they still have a debit balance sitting out there for $3,000. The question is, why in the world would I have done this down here? And, and this technique is called the posting of residual items. Sometimes companies will do this to trigger another bill to be sent to the customer. Because now this will result in the customer being sent a bill saying you owe us $3,000. This up here might not result in a bill being sent to the customer. They would still owe us the $3,000, but they wouldn't know that until something else happens and they find that there's a past due amount. Now, as far as which of these companies do most commonly, I have no idea. The point is, either way we arrive at the same destination, but there are companies that will do this scenario right here so that they can take advantage of getting the customer bill. Because this, this raises all kinds of issues here as well, which is suppose we charge customers a late fee, um, and we charge them a late fee of 5%. Well, what amount are you going to be charging them the 5% on? they're only really late on the $3,000.
So by doing this right here and posting the $3,000 as a residual item, it becomes perhaps a little bit cleaner and clearer in our accounting system for, for that to, to play out there. So two different ways of handling this. One I think is relatively straightforward. The other one looks a, a little bit confusing here. Questions about this? Yes, sir. So, are, so the scenario then becomes, if it's a matter of the customers getting a discount, we, we post it like this. Um, so I think that, does that handle all the different scenarios here? Is there something else you had envisioned? I just kind of wanted to know like, what a company would most likely do. Well, really there, it's, it's um, And, and one of the things, and I'm, 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 I was going to mention this even before you asked me that question, so this is not in any way directed at you or related to your question, but over the years I have discovered that um, college students in particular are really good at like keeping payments up in the air for a period of time. You know, like sometimes they'll, they'll, um, they'll send in a payment and forget to sign the check which means that in some cases can't be presented and so like the landlord will say, oh, you forgot to sign the check, come by the office and sign the check. And meanwhile, you just got like another four days for the check before it had to clear. And, uh, or you do, there's all kinds of tricks the check got lost in the mail. So th that it's not unusual for customers to do all kinds of odd things when, when it relates to paying. Um, there is in, in, laws that most states will respect, something called the mailbox rule, which means that if we have a standard contract that says that I have to pay you by December 10th, that means that it has to be in the mailbox by December 10th. But most credit card companies and other places have kind of gotten hip to that and they will on their billing say we have to receive the payment by December 10th. So if it just says you have to pay by a certain day, it just has to be in the mail by then. Otherwise, if they say, no, we have to receive the payment by a certain date, that kind of changes the rule there. Now, in reality, companies get payments a day or two late all the time, and that's why I say you really have different rules here. You know, it might be they say, okay, if you're 15 days late, after that there's a late fee, but in reality they don't start applying late fees until the 18th day to try and be customer friendly. We just have to figure out how we want to handle that in, in posting to the accounts. But we would do it in, in this kind of scenario here where we would have a, a discount account or something that we, would, that we would be throwing the discrepancy into. This would also happen, by the way, if it's just a mistake where the customer is supposed to pay us $92,005 and they just send us a check for $92,000 even, 
we're not going to bill them for that $5. We'll just write that $5 off. And so we'll have an account probably similar to a sales discount account that's just called like payment discrepancies. And if it's for really, really small amounts, we'll just put it in that payment discrepancies account to make things balance out. But this is why this all gets really, really hairy in a lot of cases. If everybody just paid everything the exact amount they're supposed to, exactly when they're supposed to, then you don't have a problem. But that doesn't happen in the real world. Okay. Other questions? This seems a little bit out of order, but I'm kind of mimicking the order that your book talked about things in. Let's back up for a second and talk about, about credit management. And we talked about the credit control areas and, and, and all of that. Um, but one of the things where credit management comes up in is in the order acceptance process. And in the order acceptance process, there are actually three different places that we can check the customer's credit. We can check the customer's credit when we take in the sales order and create it, or if we change a sales order that's in the system, bless you. We also can and often do check the customer's credit before we create the delivery. And lastly, we can check the customer's credit before we do the post goods issue. Now, the first one of these, when the sales order is created, that's pretty logical, I think. No, your credit line is $500, and you're trying to place a $700 order. You're over your credit line. We can't accept that. Somebody explain to me the logistics of why, why number two makes sense. Why would we do that? What's that? Well, a delivery document is going to be created, or a delivery document is going to be changed. But focus on the delivery document being created. First of all, what is the when we say the delivery document is created, what, what does that mean, practically speaking? We're about to deliver the item. Okay, so why would we check the customer's credit before we do that? Okay, something might have happened between these two steps that changed things. Maybe the customer had a $50,000 credit limit. And so at the time we took their order, they had a $50,000 credit limit. They weren't really close to that credit limit at that point, so we took an order. But in between, after we took that order, something happened and we had to reduce the customer's credit limit to $25,000. Maybe we got word that they filed bankruptcy. Maybe um, we saw you know, they've gone past due now on a couple of bills. And for whatever reason, we've lowered their credit limit to $25,000. And so delivering this would put them over that credit limit. So in that situation, even though at the time we took the order, they were good, we still might want to check later on to make sure we still want to deliver it. The third reason why we check is post goods issue is where we officially transfer ownership to them. 
So we could have a situation where we have delivered the item to the customer. Imagine, for example, it's a truck. And so we have delivered the truck to them, but we haven't actually given them the title and the other paperwork that they would get at, at post goods issue. And it's because after delivery, we check and we discover, oh, wow, they're way over their credit limit. And, and so we need to, basically, we, we want to get out of this. Or some way, we want to make sure that we haven't overexposed ourselves to risk. So there are three different places where companies can set up their system to check credit. When we take the order, right before we queue up delivery, and then right before we do the post goods issue. And, and we'll approve this based on our credit exposure. And so the system will look at, okay, what orders are being processed? What deliveries are outstanding? What's the state of bills that we've already sent them? What's the state of receivables? We can actually tell the system to check a lot of different things. And how much effort we put into this will vary quite significantly based on customer history, the industry we are in, and so on. For example, you run a utility company. Specifically, you run an uh, electric company. How does an electric company get your attention if you owe them a lot of money? They shut your electricity off, okay? Now, that is not an action to be undertaken lightly because, hypothetically, you turn someone's electricity off, they have specialized equipment at home that's keeping them alive, they could die, okay? You think that sounds silly, but a lot of times in areas where it gets very, very hot and people have air conditioning that keep them cool during the summer, turning off someone's electricity could have catastrophic effects on their health. So before you go and turn off anybody's electricity, you have a whole bunch of criteria you want to check. And in fact, I think in a lot of states, there are laws that say, you know, you can only do it under this set of circumstances. So every company out there is going to have their own set of criteria that they are going to configure in the system. Now, what will actually happen here in the most typical scenario is maybe um, you do the credit check at the time the order comes in. And at the time the order comes in, you might get a message from the system that basically says the customer is very, very close to being over their credit limit. Or maybe this order will place them over their credit limit, but by a trivial amount. And so in that case, the order entry clerk will get a warning message that will come up and basically say the customer's credit exposure is going over their credit line, but it's such a minimal amount, they can just hit enter and continue. And the idea would be if they're talking to the customer on the phone, they could say, oh, by the way, keep in mind you have a bill coming up, and so on. Or if we try and put an error into the, or put an order into the system or delivery into the system or do a post goods issue and the credit management process has employed the logic that we have configured, it will block us and it will say, no, I cannot accept an order from that customer. And it will give you a hard error and terminate. 
And in that case, you, you have no ability to override that. And that's typically because the people putting in the orders and the people making credit management decisions to totally different parts of the organization. So we do have the ability to do that. The other thing we have the ability to do corresponds with steps two and steps three here, which is we go ahead and take the order, but, but we block delivery. And so that's always, having worked in a collections department in the past, that's always a really, really nice weapon to use, you know, in trying to get money from a customer. You know, basically call the customer say, we've got your order here, and, and we can deliver it to you tomorrow, but you owe us some money. If you'll sell us, send us a check for $3,000 or give us a credit card number or whatever, as soon as we get that, we'll, we'll send out your shipment. And so we can have the system block the delivery so that, so that we can hold it. And this is the flow chart for that. So we get the sales order, we do a credit check. Is the customer within their limit? Yes, we continue on. Is the customer within their limit? No, okay? So in the short run, we block their delivery. But then typically we have a human being look at this and say their credit line is $500,000. They order several million dollars worth of stuff from us every year. They want to place an order that's going to place them $15,000 over their limit. Let's raise their credit limit or let's just let this order go through. And so typically a human being will make a decision to release or not release. If they say yes, release, then we process the order. If they say no, we don't release this, then somebody's gonna have to call the customer up and talk to them and explain to them exactly what is, what is going on. Questions? Okay, here's my plan. This slide right here is a summary slide. I think what makes sense is when we come together on Thursday, we will talk about this slide and a couple of slides that follow it, and then the likelihood of having a quiz after we have done those things is pretty high. But this will give us an opportunity to review some things before we have a hypothetical quiz next time, okay? Any questions, therefore, before we head out?